0: Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, where you can hear classic recorded messages from Kimber Kaufman. Throughout these messages, Kimber faithfully follows the text to deliver God's message and to practically apply it to life. The proper hermeneutic, the proper way to study the Bible is to see in the book of Judges that it's all about God. Listen, it's about His goodness, it's about His faithfulness. It's about his anger out of jealous love for us. It's about his sovereignty. Listen, everybody, let's just sink in. Everything that happens to us, great or small, major or insignificant, happens as a result of his sovereign love and goodness towards us. Spurgeon said this, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the Word, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Pray with me, and let's seek the Lord and ask for the Spirit of God to teach us from His Word. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the promise in Your Word not to leave us comfortless, but that You would give us the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit to speak to us. We are grateful for the wonderful privilege that we have to study Your Word. We would ask that it would be graven into our hearts. We don't want to just be religious, but really get the truth. And then we can delight in it. So We ask for Your blessing and Your help now, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, we will not do as we normally do, and that is go verse by verse, studying this text of Scripture, which is known as expository preaching. In fact, what we're going to do instead is to reap the benefits for the last six weeks and for the expository messages that we've had here, going through the book of Judges as um, we have covered the first seven chapters of Judges, verse by verse. Um, and I and I say that also, the reason for this is more of a message that has definitely been studied and prepared for, but a message that has been born. And and I want to say it this way that uh a week ago I was pr- preached Monday through Friday in Missouri to a group of missionaries 120 missionaries and I preached 12 times in 5 days. In fact it was quite a preacher's paradise because uh there was not only lots of preaching but they gave me no time limit and so the shortest amount of time that I ever preached was an hour and 5 minutes and I preached sometimes an hour and a half and it w- it was really good. And what I want you to know is this that that um that the the messages that I preached were just the same message that I preached here the last five weeks, the last six weeks, the messages in the book of Judges. And and I will tell you that during my study time in the book of Judges for the last several weeks, that the grace of God has been richer and deeper, and I've understood an aspect of God and His goodness and His sovereignty in a growing and a deeper way. And I've really been thankful for that. But what I also want you to know is this. That preaching those same messages again, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, one right after another, and preaching the whole message, because you guys usually only get part of it, you know, you don't get all of it. And preaching all of it, and, 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 and pouring myself in, it made those themes just be multiplied. It made the goodness and the grace of God come alive in my heart in a way that maybe I have never tasted of before. I also want you to know this, that, um, at the same time, I'm preaching to these 120 missionaries. I mean, these are people that sold businesses and and left jobs that became missionaries, and they're sacrificing on a much lower income. They're godly people. They're good people, but they would come to me for help, and they would say things to me like this. They would say, they would be discontented. They would be discouraged. They would say, if I had a different position here in the mission, or if I had another job, or if I was in another field, if I was back in the pastorate, or maybe if I was a, a teaching Sunday school and was faithful as a businessman, maybe I made a mistake. If, if my spouse didn't have these problems, maybe I would be better off. Or uh, maybe the family that I grew up in, if they hadn't treated me a certain way, I could be better off. It was just one thing after another of griping and complaining by good people. If I had more money, they say. Now, having these godly people and these good people say these things At the same time, they're complaining to me. I'm delighting in the Scriptures as I'm preaching to them. Maybe they're not getting anything out of it, but I am. And I'm delighting in the Scriptures about God's grace. At the same time, I hear them complain. I'm wondering, where's the connection? How come I'm so encouraged by God's grace, and these people are so full of complaints? What is the difference? And something dawned on me as I listened to them. They reminded me of someone that I knew. Someone that I know quite well. In fact, someone that I've spent more time with than anybody. Me, that's what they reminded me of, all right? And that is, they were Christian, they were orthodox, they were biblical, they were sound, but they were going through the motions. They were griping, complaining, discontented, and bottom line, it comes to something like this. They felt that God cared for others, but not really for them. That God listened to others, but didn't really listen to them. That God blessed others, but didn't really bless them. That somehow they had slipped through the fingers of omnipotence and they had somehow missed out on God's blessing and that there was some day in the past when they used to be fired up and serve the Lord, but somehow they are just sort of in the drudgery of everyday life and they really had sort of lost it and God had somehow forgotten them. They could not apply, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. They could not apply, Give thanks in all things for this is the will of God. And they were very much in that sort of mode. Now, having said all that, let me tell you what I was preaching to them. Also, if you have been here, I preached it to you. But let me sort of survey and highlight some of the themes that were going on uh, at the same time that all this is happening. And that is, let's take a highlight of the book of Judges. And before we actually highlight it, I want you to look with me in chapter 3 at a couple of key words, starting with verse 7 of chapter 3, going back to Othniel. Judges chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, the children of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of Jehovah, and they forgot Jehovah their God, and they served Balaam and Asheroth. Now, now everybody, every time you see the word Jehovah or Yahweh or Lord in your Bibles, I want you to remember that you see the action word there. Now, look look at what he does. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of Jehovah was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim. Here it is. God gets angry with His people's sin, and it does something. He sells them, and their situation changes. Okay? Now look at this. Verse 9. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, Jehovah raised up a Savior, or raised up a judge. Now here they are. Because of their own sin, they cry out to God, and God does something. Now look at the last part of verse 10. It says, The Lord delivered Cushan-Rishathaim." King of Mesopotamia, get it, the Lord delivered. Okay? Look at chapter 3, verse 12. It says, And the children of Israel again did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Here's an evil king. And here you see the sovereignty of God behind the scenes, and there he is working, strengthening an evil king to put his own people in oppression. And again, what the writer wants you to see here is the sovereignty of God. The the Bible is a revelation of God to us. And sometimes we do so many character studies that we miss out on the very person of God that's being revealed in the Scriptures. And he says this in verse 15, But when the children of Israel cried unto Jehovah, Jehovah raised up a Savior, Ehud. Survey real quickly with me chapter 4. Just notice a couple of the key verses. Look with me to verse 2 of chapter 4. It says, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Go to chapter uh, 4 and verse uh, 6. It says, And the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded. Now go to verse 7. I will This is God speaking. I will draw unto thee, into the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army. And verse 7 again. I will deliver him into your hand. Verse 9. Jehovah will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Go down to verse 14. It says, And Deborah said to Barak, Up! This is the day that the Lord hath delivered Sisera into your hand. The Lord has gone out before you. And look at verse 15, and the Lord discomfited, or the Lord routed Sisera. Now, are you with me? All through the book of Judges, you see these key public statements talking about the sovereignty of God, the Lord sold, the Lord delivered, the Lord routed, the Lord raised up, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's the Lord that does it. The whole concept of the text is God is at work. Now, real quickly, we can see in just review of the cycle. The book of Judges is about man's failure and yet about God's faithfulness. And I will tell you, I was not expecting to get blessed like I have been blessed in my study of the book of Judges. What I was expecting was seeing as everyone said, it's the saddest book of the Bible. It's the, it's the sorriest book of the Bible. There's more bloodshed in Judges. There's more terrible. You know what I've been seeing? I have been seeing, when man is at his worst, God's grace is at its best. And I have been seeing the gracious drippings of God all over the place of just, of just wonder, uh, wonder upon his people's sin. We learned from Othniel this. Remember, the first judge is Othniel. And look at one of the main lessons we learned, and that is this. God's anger with his covenant people's unfaithfulness burns from the heat of his jealous love. Everybody, several of these missionaries came up and they said, you know, here I've been in full-time Christian work for years, and I didn't understand that when God was angry at me, instead of me and deals with me it puts me in some difficult circumstance that I don't like, instead of me going, um, oh, he's mad at me, oh, what can I do? And, And feeling like I'm out of favor, I didn't realize that it was actually the love of God that made him jealous of me when I was in sin and then spanked me with discipline or some kind of oppression. It was all out of his love. In other words, his anger is stemmed out of his love. The illustration I gave is this. If you're, a, if you suddenly came home and, and I had to tell you, I'm sorry, but your spouse has been unfaithful to you and you have been a faithful, godly spouse and you looked at me and you go, really? And I said, yeah and you went like this, and you said, well, what time do you want to eat tonight? I would realize, you didn't love your spouse. Because if you've entered into a covenant relationship with someone, and they're unfaithful to you, there should be a jealous anger that burns in your heart. Well, so it is with God. God's anger with His covenant people's unfaithfulness burns from the heat of His jealous love. So our God, listen, our God shows, His anger shows His faithfulness. It shows His love. His anger is the price we pay for being loved. He loves his people, so he disciplines them, he punishes them, he humbles them, so they will change, grow, and wake up. But even if you get dealt an angry hand from Almighty God, you can be assured, if you're in Christ Jesus, that that angry hand is only because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. tell you, that's something to delight in. Do you understand that? That is something to rejoice in. In fact, look at another thing we learned from Ehud in chapter 3, 12 through 30. And that is this, and by the way, notice the hermeneutic here being God. God's anger, here's God's love. What do we learn from Ehud? We learn this. God loves us so much that he cannot stand far away from us during our misery and chaos, even when our own sin has caused our problems. Are you hearing me? Friends, listen, what the book of Judges says is this. Even when God's people, the word, when the Bible says they cried out to the Lord because they were so oppressed, it does not mean they repented. It means they cried out because they were so miserable because of the sin that their own sin had caused. And listen to this. God loves you so much that it would be as if you were a parent and you had a child, and that child was in the hospital, and the child was in severe pain, and you're down the hall, and you hear the child screaming with pain. The parent, we're we're not omnipotent. We're not all-powerful. And we would want to run out and get the doctors. Doctors, can't you do something to get my daughter or my son out of this pain? Well, would you do something? And, but see, Almighty God, He hears the cries even when our own sin has caused it. And He's so loving, He's so committed to His people, that when He hears you groan because of the own misery that your own evil choices have made, He still comes in and delivers you. I'll tell you, what a story of grace. What a story of grace. Do you understand this? We've got this idea in our minds so much of the time that somehow we've got to earn God's favor. That somehow we're going to be out there and we're going to do something and now He's going to have to bless me. But this is the God of grace. And some of us self-righteously sit back and say, well, I've never been as bad as somebody else. Well, I'll tell you something. If very possibly where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And there's a tasting of the sweetness of God's grace when we have sat back and said, oh, I'm such a miserable failure. T- I don't know if that does for you what it does for me, but I'm going to tell you it makes me want to delight in God. It makes me want to just say, oh, Lord, I love you. I don't know if I've ever delighted in you, even when my own sin is the cause of my problems. You're still a God that doesn't give up on me. That's something to shout about, friends. That is something to shout about. In fact, listen to what one man, one writer said. He said, the glory of God of the book of Judges is this. He deals with the dirty, mixed-up affairs of life in which his people find themselves. Here we are, some in family situations we've messed up, some in emotional trauma, some in grief and sorrow, or in the clutches of temptation. Life seems to be a mass of twisted coat hangers and disconnected doorknobs. And the glory of the scriptures is this. It tells us that Yahweh is not a white-gloved, standoffish God out somewhere in a remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get his strong right arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. The God of the Bible does not hold back in some wild blue yonder somewhere waiting for you to pour Clorox and spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he will touch it. Whether you can comfortably put it together or not, he is the God who delights to deliver his people, even in their messes, and likes to make them laugh again. He is the God who allows weeping to endure for a night, but sees to it that joy comes in the morning. Praise God for what we learn about him in the book of Judges. We consider Deborah, and what do we learn from Deborah? God is sovereign over all of life. He is in control of things great and small. He can send a storm at the right time so that the 900 iron chariots of Sisera sink into the ground, and at the same time, and all the soldiers flee and a major rout takes place, at the same time he can have a little Kenite family move from southern Israel to northern Israel so they're in the right place to nail jail on the head with a tent peg at the right time. He is a God that can sovereignly control all things, and yet we also learn that man is responsible. Because in chapter 5, the song of Deborah and Barak, as they sing it, we find out this, the willing volunteers of Israel are praised. And at the same time, those that did not get involved are rebuked. And so we hear that God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible to, to fight for the cause of the kingdom and for the further the cause of Christ. And then we learn, listen, and, and stay here with me in this quick review. Don't let it, don't let it go cold on you. We also learn this. God deals with his people's frailty with astounding love and tender encouragement. When you look at Gideon, you see a weak man. You see a man that's in the hall of fame of faith, but you see a man that is constantly saying, are you really with me? Are you sure you're with me? Hey, if you're with me, would you don't be angry with me. Well, let me ask you one more thing. And you see Gideon constantly being nervous and insecure, and at the same time, God constantly dealing with that frailty. One of the men this morning that was working in the booth in the first service came up and said, he was holding his little daughter, little baby, loose a cute little thing. She was sitting there. And I said, oh boy, she looks cute today. He goes, yeah, she looks cute, but she's been up screaming since midnight now you know what just because she was up screaming and caused inconvenience you don't go like this your baby messes the pants messes their diapers and you change the diapers and you go this is it this is your last warning never again you don't do that because see listen a father and a mother deal with great patience and great great comfort and great and take great delight in the weakness and the frailty of their child so that they delight to help the frailty of the child listen friends the God of the Bible is the same way He deals with his people's frailties. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Listen, he remembers our frame. He knows that we are made from dust. He is a God that understands how weak and frail we are. He's a God that delights in helping us with our frailties and loving us. Listen, we've got this idea. We've got this idea that somehow... Christians walk around. And they go like this. And what comes out of Judges when we study it verse by verse is we get this idea: Oh, I didn't stay in line. Oh, I, oh, I'm out of line. God's going to get me. And that's the, the attitude of so many Christians. Do you know that what we learn from the book of Judges is God is committed to your encouragement. That it is God that worketh in you. That it is God that gives you great energy. That it is, a, it is a God that delights to help you. The very name of the Holy Spirit is Paraclete, one who comes alongside. He's a God that's committed to helping you. In fact, friends, let me just review with you quickly God's encouragement of Gideon. Since we're on this chapter 6, let's just review quickly. He hears Gideon's cry. He sends a prophet with a message to build Gideon's faith. The Lord of heaven comes and meets with Gideon, and get this conversation. Now, you can look at it in your scriptures. We've already gone over it verse by verse, but just get it quickly. He encourages him. He listens to his burden. God encourages Gideon. He listens to his burden. The angel of the Lord gives more encouragement. He listens again. He gives more encouragement, this time with a promise. Gideon says, give me a sign. Commentators say, bad Gideon. The Lord says, okay. He says, I'm scared. He gives him words of comfort. Gideon then worships. Then he starts getting off small to build his faith. Then he allows a major problem into his life. And then he patiently works with Gideon through his weaknesses and his frailties. Twice he says, let the fleece be wet and the ground dry. Let the fleece be dry and the ground wet. And God says, okay, and he gives him some reassurance. And then he sends Gideon on a secret mission to the Midianite camp for the sole purpose of encouraging him. We're dealing with a God of grace and a God of love towards us and helping us. In fact, look at this. The next thing we learn from Gideon chapter 7 is this. By the way, isn't this interesting? We talked here about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And then you get, okay, so we're supposed to be responsible, and yet we still see that God, even when we're supposed to be responsible, deals with our frailties, because when we're at our best, we still have to have his grace or we can't do it. And here's the thing I want you to see is this. Then in chapter 7, God desires his servants to realize their weakness, so they will clearly see he's the one who delivers them. Now, everybody, please note this. In chapter 6, verse 36 through 40, Gideon talks to God about assurance. But in chapter seven, one through eight, God talks to Gideon about his weakness, and here's the way it is, isn't it? We as Christians, we go to God and we say, "Are you really with me? Can you really help me? Can I really do this? Will you please help me with this?" And God gives us His promises, and then He deals right around and puts us in circumstances to humble us, to make us weak, even though we may not like it, because He knows the heart of man, and the heart of man is that he will get the that man will get the glory if it isn't clearly abundantly made clear that God, um. Deals with us. And by the way, I, want to, I didn't get to show you this. I'll show you one more thing. Even this last thing in chapter seven, God sends Gideon on a secret mission to, to Midnight Camp for the sole purpose of encouraging him. God says, look it. You've got 300 men up on a mountain. There's 135,000 Midnights. I know your condition. I know your frame. I know your situation. You're a little nervous. I want you to go down to the Midnight Camp. I've got a little encouragement down there for you. He goes, really? Gideon goes down with his servant Pura. They sit outside the gate. He listens to one guy tell his dream. The other guy says, oh, I can interpret that. That's Gideon. We're going to get killed. And Gideon goes, yes, yes. And he goes racing back up to the camp. And he goes, look, the Lord's with us. Guys, get up. And those 300 men go charging out and wipe out 135,000 soldiers. Now, if you don't know, if you don't understand it all that, you've got to read between the lines. I mean, not read between the lines. You need to read the actual lines that are there, okay? But he's committed there to our encouragement. Now, look at this. And then in chapter 8, Gideon sends Gideon more problems right after his wonderful victory and their problems within the tribes. You didn't call us. You didn't ask us. What's the problem? And everybody's getting mad about that. Now, I say this now, the proper hermeneutic, the proper way to study the Bible is to see in the book of Judges that it's all about God. Listen, it's about his goodness, it's about his faithfulness, it's about his anger out of jealous love for us, it's about his sovereignty. Now, listen everybody, let this sink in. Everything that happens to us. Did you did you hear what I said? Everything. Everything it happens to us, great or small, major or insignificant, happens as a result of His sovereign love and goodness towards us. Now listen to me. Every blessing, every trouble, every good thing, every bad thing, every encouragement, every difficulty. One of the leaders of the missionaries that I was speaking to in Missouri a week ago came up to me after the final session and said, what can we do? We have got to do something to remember this. God's goodness and God's sovereignty and how they go together and that nothing, absolutely nothing comes our way but isn't for our good. And the good not being defined, by the way, as us being comfortable and having a life of ease, but the good being defined as us growing into Christ's likeness." He goes, what can I do? to this? He goes, this changes everything. It brings so much hope, it renews life, it makes everything smell fresh. Stop and think about this, friends. Listen to me. When you sin, out of love and faithfulness and goodness, He sells you into oppression. He brings some kind of discipline into your life, working out His best for you because He loves you. And when you cry out because of the oppression, out of His love and faithful goodness, He wonderfully delivers you. Look, everybody, stop and rejoice in who God is. This is, we're not making this up. I mean, this is right there out of the text of Scripture. I want you to see this. He allows nothing. That is absolutely nothing. Not even the smallest thing that isn't for our good. Good being our maturity of godly character. He is faithful father of all wise and he doesn't want a bunch of brats running around. He's a God that is committed to us so he is gonna, you say, but I, but he must be against me. He just humbled me. He's put me in these situations and I just don't like it. Hey, you can be assured that God is not a liar. You can be assured that he's still committed to you. And you can be assured that if he is bringing some kind of problem into your life and you don't like it and you don't like your situation, you don't like something in your marriage, you don't like something at work, you don't like something in your family, you don't like something with your health, whatever it is, you don't have to sit back and go, oh, he must be against me. You can say, God is good. He would not allow this into my life, but he's trying to teach me something and he's disciplining me for some reason. Now, when I discipline my kids, I'm sure sometimes I make a mistake. At least they think I do. All right? All right. But the Almighty does not discipline us ever with a wasted hurt. And He has got a a plan for our lives to get us to know Him and to get us serious about Him, and He has bringing those things into our life. And so get this, look look at what we do. We think we're better off strong, but He, as a sovereign Father, knows we're better off weak, so He makes us weak in some situation. Look at this, we get to think we can do it ourselves, but He makes us see we can't do it. We get in a situation where we think we need to build our self-confidence. You hear this all the time in the world. You've got to have confidence in yourself. God says, no, no. He wants to build God confidence. When Gideon went back up to get those 300 men, he was full of God confidence that God was going to deliver Israel. In fact, look at this. The bottom line of all of this is this. God is sovereign over everything. I'm talking even about stubbing your toe. He is sovereign over everything. And please get this. He is always good. He's sovereign. He's good. And please get this. This is totally liberating when it is apprehended by faith in your inner man. Spurgeon said this, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Friends, I'll tell you, there's something wrong though. The plain ugly fact remains that most Christians do not believe this when it gets down to the reality of everyday life. Instead of rejoicing always, and again I say rejoice, instead of counting it all joy when you come into trouble or you're hurt or rejected or you're squeezed by some kind of pressure that God puts into your life, instead, listen, most Christians, like my missionary friends and like myself, live dejected, faithless, angry, feeling forsaken, griping, complaining, no testimony whatsoever. Listen why, everybody. Please listen. Because you have the tendency to look at trouble, uncomfortable situations, difficulty, trials, poor health, low money, heavy pressure, hard interpersonal relationships, some kind of insult or offense, you have the way of taking all of those things and thinking that somehow they're outside the realm of God's sovereign goodness. Somehow, you look and you go, if I was really loved by God, my life would go this way but just study the Bible characters. They all thought that, and they were all wrong. And God had their life go this way. And they sit around, and we sit around, and we think, hey, hey, and they look, Christians typically do this, and I am king of this. We look at our circumstances, and we say this. If my circumstances were different, I could be happy. Or if these people were different, I could be happy. Or if the events outside of my life were different, then I could be happy. And we sit around, and we pray, Lord, change those people. Lord, change my circumstances. Change my spouse. It's their, Lord, I could be happy if you just get them to see this. You see. Or change something. Well, listen, friends. It's the, it's the old if-only situation. If only this person would just get out of my life, then I could be happy. If only I had a better job. If only my spouse was more supportive. If only I had more money. If only I had the respect of certain people. If only I had done something differently in the past. If only I had what so-and-so had. And that's one way. We go through it all, and, we, and, and people live discontented, upset lives, and they think, oh, this other person, they've got it made, and the grass always seems greener. But I want to assure you of something. The problem with your life is not outside of yourself. The apostle can sit in a jail cell, sitting in his own urine, eating hardly any food whatsoever, and talk about delighting in the Lord and rejoicing always. So don't tell me that your spouse is the cause of your problems. The problem with all of us is in here not apprehending that God is good and sovereign and he wouldn't give you a spouse like that. He wouldn't give you trouble at work. He wouldn't put you in some situation if it wasn't for some kind of process to weaken you so that you may taste more of his grace. Well, I'll tell you something. This is real Christianity. It gets down to what it's really about. It's something we need to know. The other side, if you don't say, if only you say things like this, I'll quit. I'm out of here. I'll find someone else. I'll go somewhere else. But I'm going to tell you something. The old country western song, you can't outrun the long arm of the law. I got news for you, friends. You cannot get away from the sovereign, omnipotent hand of Jehovah God. You can run. You can change. You can quit jobs. You can change spouses. You can try doing all these different things. The fact is, God can catch up to you. You cannot hide. You cannot pull the covers over. You can't go to the farthest part of the sea. There is a sovereign God that knows where you are. And he will get you. And I will tell you something. You want to try running? The Bible says don't do it, but it, talk to somebody that has. I've run before. It catches you every time. And you still have to learn your lesson. So instead of saying something like this, if only I could change something outside myself, then I could be happy, satisfied, content, confident that God loves me. Then I would be, not, wouldn't be frustrated. I wouldn't be so angry. Instead of saying this, listen, by faith realizing that trusting in God's sovereign goodness and knowing that he has both encouraging blessings as well as all sorts of trouble coming at you with perfect, sovereign, Jehovah-like, fathering timing in your life. He's got it written all over it. Here comes a trouble. And that trouble has got your name on it, and no matter which way you duck, it's going to get you. You can't get away from it. I'm going to tell you, when you stop and stop going like this, oh, God, would you, and you say, Lord, thank you, your plan is best. My plan is maybe to exalt myself, but that's what the people of Gideon were going to do. He says, no, you're you you going to exalt yourself. That's not going to happen. I'm going to get the glory out of your life. And so he's going to put you in some situation where you just are frustrated, but he's not there to make you miserable. He's not there to just beat you over the head. He's a sovereign God that loves you and says, look, I want what's best for you. I'm not going to settle for the superficial way you want to live. If it, all sunshine makes a desert, if you just got everything you wanted, you'd be a little brat running around. He says, "I don't want any brats. I want people that really know and." and friends, when you comprehend this, it is joyous, liberating love, isn't it? It is joyous liberation to get to know a God such as this. In fact, let's look at a couple of quotes on this point because this is so good. I want you to see this and just let it let it sink into us. One man said this evangelical religion, as an aid to self-assurance, health or wealth, really sort shortcuts the soul's path towards contact with God. And isn't that what a lot of Christianity tries to do these days? They try to get you to say, hey, use God to make yourself rich. Use God to demand health. Use God, it's sort of like God on demand. Okay, Lord, got a problem, take care of it. Get him, big Jehovah. Okay, but listen, which is the But which is the heart's deepest desire is contact with God, and we short-circuit that when we look at God only from that standpoint. Augustine observed, Many cry to the Lord to avoid losses, or to acquire riches for the safety of their friends, or for the security of their homes, or for some temporal felicity or worldly distinction. Yes, even for mere physical health, which is the sole inheritance of the poor man. And isn't that true? Don't we cry out, Oh Lord, don't let me lose my home! Oh Lord, don't let me lose my health! Oh, Lord, don't let me do, you know, don't, 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 please stop something here. I want to have something. I Don't I deserve to at least have a home? And you see, we've got all this idea, like, God, please do this. Please help us. And sometimes we miss. We don't want God himself. It's easy to want things from God, but not wanting God himself. Please Look at this. Look at this. You do not find one godly man who came out of an affliction worse than when he went into it. For while he was shaken, yet at last he was better for an affliction you'll never seen god waste trouble on his children he brings difficulty and trouble into your life but it's never for a waste listen friends i i'm going to just open my heart and share with you something here on this point i i often go and and if anybody knows me very well they know that i struggle with worry and i don't want to hear any big amens out there okay but that's a struggle i've worried i think there and i sit there and i think i think hey what about when I'm 40 years old? If the church isn't like I'm, I sort of picture myself being as somebody important when I'm 40. What if I'm not? And I, or I sit there and I go, or I think, "Hey, the church is growing and that's good." But what happens if there's a, one of those things that happen in churches and there's a big split and people leave and I'm sitting here and there's hardly enough people? And we have to lay off some of the staff. Or I sit there and I think, "Hey, what happens if 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 I, if, you know, something happens?" Well, let me let me just tell you one of the, the ways this has been such a liberation to my heart. Let's just say that I get to be fat, lazy, I play golf every day, I hardly study for a sermon, I get up here and just sort of tell a couple of stories and we don't handle the text carefully. Let's just say that I do that. And let's say that as a result of that, this church just starts to fall apart. There could be other reasons for it, but let's just say that's the reason. And I sit back and I go, oh man, look what I've done. You know what's so liberating to me? If that's the case, the church falling apart would be the delivering sovereign hand of God to rescue me out of my own wickedness and get me to change from my laziness and get back to do what I'm supposed to do. And so I can rejoice that he would love me so much that he wouldn't let me go astray. Do you see what I'm my point? Now, let's just say this. Let's just say under the same circumstances, the church falls apart and it goes way down and we have to lay off people and, and, and we can hardly pay the bills and all that around here. Let's just say, but the whole time I was diligently studying and I was praying more than I've ever prayed. Then you know what I can do? I can trust the sovereign hand of Almighty God, who knows what's best for me. And he says, Kim, I've got some trouble in your life because I want to take you deeper into to know who I am. You see what I'm saying? All sunshine makes a desert. We don't want to be barren. And so look at—there there is not one godly man who came out of affliction worse than we went into it. And one of the reasons in a country with it as rich as ours is we can buy so many things and do so many things to try to get the ache out of our heart. And the fact is, we've got to become godly and sometimes we just have to submit to the sovereign hand of God and what he wants for us, because he knows best. Look at what Oswald Chambers said. At the root of all sin is the belief that somehow God is not good. I tell you, I have been there, friends. I have been there. In case you're sitting here today, I want you to know this. The number one goal of the devil, right out of Genesis 3, is to get you to believe that God doesn't love you and is not good. And I have been so brokenhearted, I have been so down in my life, that I sat there and I thought this, either Christianity is a sham, or, or the Almighty God has forsaken me. Because he couldn't have allowed me to be in this much grief and this much trouble, how could he have done it? Only to look back years later and to say, "This—he knows what's best, and I don't." He is sovereign, and there's a, there's, a, there's a deeper understanding of his word and of his. And at the time, you would ask me, "Do you like it?" And I would have said, "No," but I also want to tell you this: When I was a little boy, six years old, and my dad said, "All right, Kim," I threw a baseball through the window. He said, "Kim, I told you not to throw the ball in that house, and he's going to get a spanking." I could see him taking off his belt. I would just about, in fact, sometimes did, wet my pants because it was such an unusual, terribly experience. and the belt would come across, and that was the discipline of a human father. And I'm going to tell you, I didn't enjoy any of it, but now I'm glad that I was disciplined by him. But I want you to know this. The Almighty is going to deal with us always in a good way. He will never, never, listen to this. You know what we're going to study tonight? We are going to, I hope, you think, I'm trying to get you back to come to the services tonight by saying this, you're absolutely right, I am. That's what I'm trying to do. And what I want you to know is this. We're going to study tonight specifically things like this. Do you know that the Bible teaches that nobody can insult you? Do you hear they? Nobody can insult you without the sovereign God allowing it for a purpose. We're going to study that tonight, where David is being cursed by a man throwing rocks and stones at him and cursing his name. And he says, no, this is a lot of Jehovah. And even Paul saying, I delight in insults. And we're going to learn more about this tonight, and we're going to go into the technical de- details of what we're talking about this morning in a, in, a more, in a more in-depth way, hopefully. Look at this. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Let me throw a couple more out there real quickly to you. Just, just delight in these. Look what Job says. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job understood that even the trouble was from God, who was good. And he says, are we going to get all these blessings from God, and now we're going to complain because we've got some trouble in our life? Or how about this? The psalmist says this, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Now look at, the word afflicted means this in the Hebrew. It means to be bowed down. It means to be humbled. It means to be put in some kind of pressed down situation. He says, before I was in that situation, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Look at this conclusion. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. I love this one. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Who's that? That's the upright man. Listen, can you imagine? Can you imagine total liberation? You don't, when you're trusting the Lord and your heart is fixed upon who God is, guess what, friends? You have no fear of bad news. The news comes, the phone call comes, and the crying voice, some difficulty comes in your life, the boss comes and says, I'm sorry, the job's over. Somehow you get severely insulted and humiliated in front of some people. I want you to know that there is a God behind it all, who may not be the author of it, in the sense that Satan was the one who wanted to put all that pressure on Job, and God allowed it. But God allowed what Satan did to, for Job's character and good overall. And there is a sovereign God there, and we have no afraid of bad. We don't even have to be afraid of bad news. I have a friend that knows a very godly man, and this man is, was his neighbor. And this man found out he's like seventy years old. He found out that he had terrible terminal cancer. And my friend went over to talk to him in the yard and while the man dying of cancer was raking his leaves. And my friend said, I'm so sorry to hear what happened. And he goes, yeah. He said, I've just, you know, the tests are going to come back next week, or or when the tests come back, I'll know exactly about how long I have to live. And so my friend said, well, when are the tests coming back? And the guy had the rake in his hand, and he looked at his wife and said, Honey, what are those tests coming back? My friend was stunned with the total freedom there was of a man who is trusting the Lord. His heart is fixed. He has no fear of bad news. God is sovereign and good. And He's controlling all things. Trust in Him at all times. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do unto me? Look at a couple more. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied to the king. Here they are, about to get thrown into the furnace. They said, "Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the gold you have set up. See, we don't know what God's sovereign hand is going to bring. I don't know if he's going to deliver us out of some situation or let us go into some trouble even unto death. We don't know. But the fact is, we trust him no matter what. We trust him. He's good. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. And allow me just to throw you a couple more. That's why we can say things like this. Consider it pure joy, my friends, when you fall into various trials. Here you are, some trouble. That's why Whitfield could say, Oh trouble, Oh tribulation that weakens me and humbles me, but draws me into the arms of my Savior. Come to me, my blessed friend. That's the person that is mature. You see, listen. If you haven't gone down deep enough in your Christian life, some bad news, you're just going to be staggered. Now, I don't mean that we hear of someone dying and we just go, oh, well, happy, happy. You know, I don't mean that. I mean that we may weep like Jesus did, but I mean this, we are so confident that God is sovereign and good that nothing can happen to us, that when bad news comes, it may make us feel bad and we may hurt, but we say, oh, God, thank you, and we've counted all joy when we fall into various trials. And we don't go around being, oh, if only something was different, then I could be a good Christian. Do you know nothing has to be different for you to be a good Christian? Nothing. Except for your heart to believe what we're saying today. That's the only thing. We need to know that, friends. Look, at life often seems to be at cross-purposes with God's will unless it is perceived through the cross-purpose of God's love. Except we realize the high estimation of the church, which is supposed to teach you so that you can go on the constraining influence of the Savior's love and the upholding prop of almighty grace, what is there to preserve us from sinking into despondency? You know, friends, I'm going to tell you. I have 18 pages here, and we're just on page 10, and that's why we're going to do the next eight pages tonight. And can I tell you, some of you don't normally go to church. You ought to come back. Nothing can encourage you more. We're going to get into the specifics of what Paul teaches now in the New Testament and go through it word by word in regards to what he teaches. But I want to tell you, this. As I started, as this sort of dawned on me recently, I felt like screaming out with joy. I feel like, in fact, I, I, in my mind, this, this phrase raced through my mind. Free at last! Free at last! Praise God Almighty, I'm free at last. That, that's what was in my heart. i was starting to think, all oh, the times I've been, I've woken up in the middle of the night unable to sleep. How many times I've just been so frustrated and angered and just felt so hopeless and felt like, well, God doesn't love me anymore. Why? Because I've taken bad news and I've interpreted it as something outside of the realm of God's goodness and His sovereignty. And it's not. And when I started to see this, I'm going to tell you something. I have, I have been rejoicing. I have, I have been delighting in God. I think maybe for the first time in my life I've known what it means to delight in God. But I want also to tell you this. It, it, the one problem we've all got is with any truth that we learn, because you always go to conferences somewhere and they go, hey, learn this principle and you'll never be the same. Well, here's the thing that I want you to know. You've got a hole in your heart or in your head. You say, oh, Kim, how do you know? Because we all do. And what happens is what we learn has a tendency to just drain right out slowly, drop by drop, until well, pretty soon you've forgotten it. And it could be in a few weeks, bad news comes, and I'm all trembling and weak and, 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 and not trusting God and feeling all sick again. who is a God like our God? Please, please, I'm asking you to come back tonight and learn from second Corinthians about Paul being tormented and being beaten. for, for the, Even though he didn't want it, it was for his best. And we'll learn some more of the details. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for being so good to us that, that we can trust you. Oh, Lord, how we wish that the hole could get plugged up in our hearts when we understand this truth. It's so liberating. We have to say to you, no one is like you. Thank you that we can totally trust you at all times because at all times you are sovereignly in control and at all times you are good. Father, forgive us for our woe, weak views we've had of you. May this message stir us to greater things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Coffman. Take care.